Well, thank you, Ed, and actually to many of you who have reached out to me and have prayed with me and said that you've uh, been praying for me. Um, I consider it very a, a very humbled privilege uh, to be able to uh, speak to you guys this morning. So we are going to be looking at several verses from Romans 1, uh, verses 1 through 17. The primary focus that we're going to be having today, though, is on Romans 1, 16, which says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, just to get an idea of, of where I came up with or how I came about with this message, and actually uh, there's several messages that I came up with because the title of today's message is What is the Gospel? And so this started really towards the end of 2020 as I was reading a book called The Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. And he describes two different events that took place with him in 1993, um, both involving large Christian conferences that he was speaking at. And so at, at one of these, he said, at, uh, didn't say how many, but at the lower level, they gave out a survey. And on that survey, there was the question, what is the gospel? And people were asked to respond to that question. And he said to his shock and really his dismay that of several hundred responses that they received, there was only deemed one adequate answer. He said later on he was set to speak at another conference that year, and uh, two separate pastors reached out to him from the area and said to him, the people here don't know the gospel. And, uh, you know, I got to thinking about that because these are people who, you know, probably attend church regularly, would call themselves Christians. They're going to these large Christians' conferences, and yet they say they don't know or they're not able to articulate what the gospel actually is. And I wish I could say, now it's really hard for me to believe that just in a few months we're going to be 30 years removed from 1993. Um... But I, and I wish I could say things have gotten better. But the reality is, things have actually gotten worse. Recently, Ligonier Ministries and Lifeway Research came out with their state of theology. It's something that they do every couple years. And they ask questions about God. They ask questions about the gospel. They ask questions about Jesus, the Bible. And without getting into a lot of statistics, let's just say that it was bad. There, there seems to be a fundamental gap among those who would say that they are born-again Christians and understanding the gospel. So Bridges was convicted by this. He wrote this book, Disciplines of Grace. And, of course, I was convicted by this. And so what I did was I came up with a series of seven different messages where I asked the question, what is the gospel? And then what I do is I answer it with an aspect or an attribute of it. So. Three of these I've recorded, and the other four are kind of in the works. And today's message is really the first in that series. And I just really have twofold why, uh, what I, I hope to get out of this, or hope that you get out of it, is one, to equip believers to understand what the gospel is and to be able to articulate it for others. And then, of course, for those, if you're in here or you're listening at home, 
If you've never accepted Jesus Christ by faith, that today will be that day. So as we look at our handout, um, the first set of blanks there, uh, what is the gospel? Well, it is the power of God for salvation. And it comes right from our uh, primary verse there in Romans 1.16. So if we're going to be talking about the gospel, I think it makes sense to come up with a definition for it. And so really, at its most basic, elementary, foundational level, the gospel means good news. And I think most people are familiar with that term. Now, as far as like outside of Scripture, you could say just in the regular like Roman world that was going on during the time that this uh, letter was written, um, the gospel was about a, an emperor who would have a son. And so, again, the Roman Empire occupied so many places throughout the world. So what would happen is they would send in heralds, right? They would send in messengers to tell the people about the birth of this emperor's son and proclaim it to them. And, of course, if this was the firstborn son of the emperor, there was a good chance that that person could possibly someday be the leader of the Roman Empire. So as we see that outside of Scripture, we can already see implications of how that might work for the gospel that um, Paul is going to proclaim. In our passage through 1 through 17, we see that it's mentioned four times. And in fact, Paul starts right off in Romans 1.1 and says, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, having been set apart for the gospel of God. So what's interesting is there's, there's actually two aspects of being set apart. So the first is Paul. It says right here that Paul was set apart um, as an apostle to preach this gospel. And we see the conversion of Paul taking place in Acts 9. And here it's, uh, the Lord is talking to Ananias, and we see this idea of him being set apart. So the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So we see Paul is set apart, but the other thing about it is the gospel is also itself, the gospel message is set apart by God. It's something unique. It's God proclaiming the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, like I said, like these emperors of old. And I think when we hear the term gospel, right, when I said that the title of my message is, What is the Gospel? I think a lot of times we think of gospel evangelism, right? We, we think of, well, we just, we just tell the, we preach the gospel to those who, you know, are unbelievers. But the reality is, the gospel is as important, and I would almost say as important to a believer in, in their lives and understanding it. And um, like I said in the book, Bridges mentions that, you know, you should preach the gospel to yourselves on a daily basis. As I mentioned um, in our passage, it's, it's mentioned four times in the first 17 verses of Romans 1. And what's interesting is that this was a church uh, in Rome that was a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. So you actually have two different races going on here that were combined at this church. And like I said, it's important for Paul, you know, that believers hear the gospel because this is actually what he wants to do, right? He wants to go to this church, and he wants to proclaim the gospel to them. 
Now, carrying on in regards to the gospel message, we see here in verse 2, it says, which he promised. So the gospel was promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Um, So the gospel is something promised from of old. And it was proclaimed by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And again, I think what we think of is when we hear the term gospel, we think New Testament. And I guess it kind of makes sense because what does the New Testament start with? The four gospels. Um, But I just want us to, as we look at this passage here and as we look at some of these other scriptures, to remember that the gospel is not just a New Testament idea. It's something that God had promised from long ago. In fact, uh, we can look at the gospel's first presentation going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Um, and the Lord is talking to the serpent and says, I will put enmity between you and woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, this is often referred to as the uh, proto-evangelium, not necessarily looking for you to remember that term other than the fact that it's the first presentation of the gospel that we see. Adam and Eve have fallen, right? So now they're, they're separated from God because of their disobedience. And yet God is promising that someday he will send a redeemer. Um, a reference in Sunday school, 2 Timothy 3.16, I think that's a familiar verse about the fact that all scriptures God breathed. Uh, what I love is the verse right before it as well, uh, 2 Timothy 3.15. And Paul, is ta- as he's talking to Timothy, tells him, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And so the sacred writings here are the Old Testament writings. And I just love the fact that Paul is saying, you know, you, you, all you have to do is look back at the Old Testament scripture if you want to understand how you are to receive salvation. It points to Jesus Christ. It points to the fact that through faith in him, uh, we can obtain salvation. We need to be reminded that um, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word does not return to us void. This gospel was promised of old. In summarizing uh, this uh, verse, this uh, commentator, Grant Osborne, says, that God, the gospel is anchored in the truths in previous Old Testament revelation. The Bible as a whole forms the gospel. Now, I don't think it's really going to come to any surprise that when I say that Jesus is the heart of the gospel message, right? He is the centerpiece of the entire gospel message. And what we see here, as Paul carries on here in Romans 1, we see some great descriptions of who Jesus is. Starting in verse 3, it says, Concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, he was designated as the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we received grace and apostleship for the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. And so, like I said, there's 
several different descriptions of Jesus in this passage, and I just want to go through them, and it'll help us understand why Jesus is the heart of the gospel message. First, it starts off by saying concerning his son. All right, so uh, this is the preexistent or uncreated one, the second person of the Trinity. As the Nicene Creed says, God of God, light of lights, very God of very God. Um, that Hebrews passage that we read earlier this morning mentioned several times Son. And so in summary, Jesus is truly God, or you could say Jesus is truly divine. Now what's interesting is right after this, he goes into a completely different direction in describing Jesus when he says he was born of the seed of David, right? So he was a descendant of David. And here we're talking about Messiah. Now the promise... um, that was given to David, well, you'll see in 2 Samuel 7, right? So he told him that in some day there will be a king who will reign on your throne from your line. And we see this uh, reflected in 2 Samuel 7:13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. We also see this in other parts of Scripture, um, in particular in Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah 11, 1 and 2 says, There shall come forth from the shoot of the stump of Jesse. So Jesse was the father of David. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And then a a familiar passage in Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. So in this, you know, like I said, we see the uh, promise that was given to David about the Messiah coming from his line. We just see it really as another aspect of God fulfilling his promises through the Scripture. The eternal king who reigns and will one day return to assume his rightful throne. So in summary, in regards to this, Jesus is truly human. Um, The Chalcedonian Creed, I think, uh, sums this up best when it says that Jesus is perfect in manhood. So we have Jesus as truly God, and we have Jesus as truly human. And it talks about now in verse 4, it says, the Son of God. And so the Son of God is used nearly 30 times um, throughout the Gospels. It's the same, in essence, as God, unique oneness and intimacy with the Father. Now, I think when we we hear the term Son of God, a lot of times we think, oh, that's deity. Um, And there's actually, obviously, that part to it. But often what we see throughout Scripture is that Son of God is really a reference to Jesus and his humanity. And we can actually see it in these Scriptures here um, on the handout. Uh, Because what they do is they reflect the fact that they're actually seeing this person in front of them. 
We see here in John 1.34, John saying, And I have seen and have borne witness to this, that this is the Son of God. Well, who is it? This person that he's seen right there in front of him, Jesus. He's the Son of God. We see the same response from Nathaniel. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel, John 1.49. And then I just love this passage from 1 John. I just love the descriptions uh, that it gives of Jesus because it makes him human, it makes him personal. Um, but yet then it also reflects upon the fact that he is also God. That which was from the beginning. So that right there harkens back to Genesis. In the, God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then we notice it says, which we heard, so we have our sense of hearing, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. So now we got hearing and we got uh, the sense of sight. Um, And have touched with our hands. So now we got the sense of touch. Concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So again, we can see deity, but we also see the humanity of Jesus wrapped up in the title of the Son of God. Now in our next blank there, you see it was through the resurrection that Jesus, as the Son of God, was declared. Again, like the heralds of old that would proclaim the birth of an emperor, um, God was saying, this is my son, and I'm going to do it through the resurrection. Now, I just want to make sure that everybody is perfectly clear about what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. Jesus did not become the son of God through the resurrection. And I know that there are some that would, would teach that, right? He wasn't like not the Son of God prior to this, and all of a sudden the resurrection happens, and now he's the Son of God. No. What this is saying is that it was the resurrection that, um, I guess, solidified or made clear to everybody that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. And I think conquering death is a good way to solidify the fact that you are the Son of God. We see this um, similar reference here in Romans 8 to what we see here when it says that, you know, he was uh, designated the Son of God according to the spirit of holiness through the resurrection. Romans 8.11 says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It is by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, that opens our eyes to new life in Christ. And then at the end of verse 4, he just kind of goes into this like rapid-fire like description. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And these three descriptions, there's, there's really just a ton of things that are, are impacted into this. First of all, Jesus' name um, means Yahweh saves. It's from the Hebrew, um, you know, Yeshua, that means Yahweh saves. And, you know, when I thought about that, the idea of Jesus saves, right, Yahweh saves, um, this, this verse in Matthew uh, one twenty one came to my mind. 
She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So uh, this is already now the second um, passage that we normally uh, reference at Christmas time. Last week we sang a Christmas hymn. I guess, you know, Lance and I are just, we're ready for Christmas, right? We're ready to celebrate the birth of Christ. Forget this Halloween stuff. Let's, let's get to the birth of Jesus. Um, but, you know, again, I, I, these, these verses, though, really reflect and really help us to understand uh, who Jesus is. It uh, calls Jesus Christ, right? So that is the anointed one. Um, we talked about the Messiah. So that the Messiah was the Hebrew <clears throat> term. Christ is the Greek term for the anointed one, the one who would reign. And then Lord means either master or ruler. Now, those are the descriptions of Jesus. But what we see here in verses 5 and 6 is the blessing of Jesus, right? This is what Jesus has done for us. And um, it says, through whom we receive grace. So unmerited favor, um, things that we do not deserve. As I mentioned before, that I have seven different messages that I've done on this. And one of my messages, um, I say, what is the gospel? It's God's gift of grace. And we see it referenced here in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. So as we look upon and we see all the descriptions of who Jesus is, we look at the, the grace that he's given to us. Again, it's something I, I didn't point out there, but verse 5 is really Paul saying, well, he's given grace to me. But he's not just given grace to me. He's given grace to you as well, to those who are in Rome, and to all of us who have believed on him. So it's no wonder, after we hear all about who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that Paul would say in uh, 115 here is that, in this way, for my part, I am eager to proclaim the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And just like Paul was eager to preach the gospel to this church at Rome, I am eager to preach the gospel to you here at Living Word this morning. So now we get into, like I said, our primary verse. And that's Romans 1.16. And just by way of reminder, again, what is the gospel? It's the power of God for our salvation. And what I want to do is just take this uh, verse, a phrase at a time, and just unpack it, unpack it for us and, and take a look at it. So it starts off by saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now when I first see that, I immediately asked the question, what would cause us to be ashamed of the gospel? And the way that I went about this was, first I wanted to look at parallels or similarities that we might have today, right? 21st century Christians living in America. What are some things that we might be able to relate to this church here in Rome? And then I wanted to look at one particular aspect that might be really would be for them and not so much for us. So I want to start with the similarities. And there I mentioned, you know, persecution, ridicule, embarrassment. Um, <clears throat> you know, I know that what I've said today is truth. And I think that many of you here today and, um, you know, those out there listening to me right now would be in agreement with me. 
But obviously there are many people who don't, right? The things that I talked about Jesus, um, you know, people do not believe. And I said I mentioned that I have done a series of seven messages, recorded three of these um, on social media. And all I can say is that the response from many was less than encouraging. So um, there's a lot of people out there very hostile to this gospel message. And even though I know it's true, and you're out there and say, yeah, I know it's true, um, I don't think any of us like to be ridiculed. I don't think any of us like to be thought of like in, in an embarrassing way. So I think that for us and for this church here, that would also be something, you know, that, what, you're, you're, you're believing that? And especially when they had other things that they, you know, had been taught and believed throughout when they were growing up. So I don't think any of us like to be ridiculed or embarrassed. Persecution. Now, I know that for us here at the church in America, we may not think of like persecution as something we could relate to, but the reality is that for many out there in the, in the world today, as Christians, they face persecution on a daily basis. Every morning, um, I pray. I have different countries, and sometimes it mentions specific people uh, for the persecuted church. And the way I see it, um, when one of the bo- part of the body is suffering, we're all suffering, right? So we're all in this together. So um, there's intense persecution that's going out there right now, today in our world. And let's just say that the uh, Roman Empire was not a haven for the Christian community. Um, these people suffered immensely and were persecuted. So persecution, ridicule, embarrassment, I think these are things that the church then church right now, uh, can relate to. The difference, however, and I would say the primary aspect of shame for the church at Rome is the message of the cross. And um, I know that, like I said, that might be hard for us to relate to. I mean, we got churches that are named after the cross. We got crosses inside of churches. We sing about the cross. We glory in the cross. We got jewelry that has crosses on it. I'm not going to lie, I like wood carvings and metal carvings of crosses. Um, you know, for us, like I said, the cross, we sing worship songs about the cross. The cross is something that we see um, in a very positive way. But for this community, that was not the case. And I think this is best illustrated from this passage in 1 Corinthians 1, 18-25. I mean, right away it says the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. The Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. And here's the key right here. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. 
And so, again, like I said, the key there is when it says it's a stumbling block to the Jews. So, in the law, it said, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And so, if you're a Jew, you're like, well, why would I worship, right? Why would I surrender my life to somebody that my law says is actually cursed? And also to the Jew, um, as you can see throughout the Gospels, really Jesus did not fit the narrative. Even though the scriptures pointed to who he is and what was going to happen, it didn't fit their narrative of who he was. He was supposed to be the conquering king right then and there, going to take over Rome. I'm not going to follow a crucified Savior. That's a stumbling block to me. And for the, the Gentiles or the Greeks, it was seen as folly because what you did, those who were crucified, those were criminals. So you're asking me to follow a criminal. That's who I'm supposed to place my faith and trust in. Um, so again, like I said, the cross was this form of execution. And why? And it's so central to the gospel message. So why would I follow it? So you can see where the cross would be a huge stumbling block, right? A huge obstacle for many of these people and why there would be shame and denial of it in their lives. Well, regardless of whatever reason either them or us today would have as far as being ashamed of the gospel and denying Jesus Christ, um, we have to remember there's strong warnings that Jesus gives to us um, if we do this. Mark 8.38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. And then it says in uh, Matthew 10.32 and 33, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, I want to talk here about this Matthew 10 verse. It actually holds a special place in my heart. The, uh, I guess you could consider it my first sermon that I ever preached. It was more like I just got up and talked. Um, but it was when I was 12 years old. We, uh, our church was doing this youth revival, and we were putting on the service for the weekend, and I was told to, you know, pick a passage, and so I chose this passage, and I got up and said it, and I don't have no idea what I said after that, but um, all I know is there was this guy that was in our youth group that was adamant about the fact that he was not going to be baptized. There was no way that he was going to get up, publicly proclaim Jesus Christ, and after that service, he came up and said, I want to be baptized. I can remember the youth pastor saying, I think you're, you know, I think what you said, you know, helped him. I'm like, well, it had nothing to do with what I said. I don't even remember what I said. I couldn't tell you one word after this, these two verses that I read. Um, so, again, I think it just shows the power of God's word. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Now we carry on here in Romans 1.16 um, with the phrase, power of God for salvation. And I don't know if your handouts are like mine, but um, up in the First Corinthians passage, I have highlighted in bold the term power of God. And the reason I did that was because 
we see the same term here in Romans 1.16. So power is a Greek word dunamis, and the reason I reference that because it may sound familiar to you because it's the word where we get the word English word dynamite. And so that really plays into the power here. Uh, think of the power of the gospel as we would think of it as dynamite. Now, what I want to do is, okay, what, what kind of message would you get, right? If you're going to give a gospel message, how would you present it? Well, first, you know, I would say that you would look at Romans 3. And, um, you know, if you're ever really feeling good about yourself, I would say read Romans 3, and afterwards you won't. Um, it does not present a very uh, pretty picture of the human condition before God. You know, we're, there's none righteous, no, not one. And um, it climaxes with Romans 3.23, and it says that we've all sinned and we've fallen short of God's glory, right? We miss God's mark and his standard for holiness. Then we go to Romans 5, verses 9 and 10, and, it, and the, uh, the paraphrasing or just, you know, combining what it says in these two verses, um, it reminds us that we're enemies of God who deserve God's wrath. Romans 6, um, 23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. We not only deserve um, physical death for our sin, but we also deserve spiritual death, separation from God. You know, as Ed was reading this First Peter passage, I just referenced the First Peter 4, 6, because it says that the gospel was proclaimed to those who were dead, right? So those who were unresponsive, cut off from God. And then I was reflecting upon this Hebrews 4 passage here, and it says that there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are uncovered and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we have an account to give. So again, we're not getting away with anything, right? There's no creature hidden from God's sight. It's all going to come to fruition. It's all going to be revealed at the end. Now, as I go through those verses, your thought might be, I thought you said gospel was good news. Because uh, this doesn't sound at all like good news. I just, I didn't really, I didn't know that I'd, had to come to church to hear that I was God's enemy, that I deserved his wrath. And really the two reasons why we need to to come to this is because, one, um, this is truth, right? This is where we stand before God. And in order to understand good news, we have to understand the bad news of our standing before God. And as I said in the beginning of this message, there's this fundamental gap between um, what the gospel is and people's understanding of it. And I think a lot of it is, is that this stuff is just not taught. This stuff is just not brought up. <clears throat> I mean, Jesus is just really kind of a tag-along. You know, you're, you're pretty good. You're almost there. Now you, you, need to, you need to add Jesus, and you'll be even better, right? So you're getting close. If you add Jesus, you'll be a rock star who's able to live your best life now. And, folks, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. Um, you don't need Jesus to make you better. As I mentioned, um, think of the power of the gospel message being like dynamite. And you need Jesus to come into your life and blow you up. That's what you need, right? You need Jesus to come in 
to the old person that Ephesians 4 says grows corrupt according to deceitful lust, and you need to have him blow that all apart. And from the ashes and from the rubble of that, then he will create in you a new creation prepared for his good works. See, when we understand that about ourselves, then we understand the power behind verses like Romans 5.8 that says that God shows his love for us, and while we were still sinners, he died for us. We see the amazing love that comes from 2 Corinthians 5.21 when it says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. The gospel is about receiving him and believing in him. John 1.12, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And uh, I love this, this verse in John that we've gone over a couple times. It's really just kind of a succinct way of thinking about the gospel message. Jesus says to his disciples, I came forth from the Father, and I've come into this world. I'm leaving the world again and going to the Father. You know, so he came into this world, took on flesh, bore the sins on the cross for us. He rose again from the grave, ascended into heaven, and someday he will return. And, you know, I think also one of the reasons why the gospel maybe has lost its meaning and why there's this gap between what is the gospel is there's really this fundamental or just this idea of just really not remembering or not thinking about God's sovereignty in this whole process. But we have to remember God's sovereignty and power is declared in the gospel. And from this uh, commentator again, it says, it's quite clear that God is sovereign in salvation. At its heart, salvation means deliverance. Liberation from the power of sin, reconciliation with the God of salvation, and deliverance from the final judgment. And so we see the power of the gospel and these, these ideas here, or these aspects. It regenerates us, it forgives us, it redeems us, it transforms us, it reconciles us, it delivers us from God's wrath. And that's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is so powerful. Now, the verse ends with this phrase, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And so, in a world of ideologies and human philosophies that try to divide us, God is what unites us. As I said, I um, was putting this message together um, at the end of 2020, beginning of 2021, and, of course, fresh in my mind were the events of the summer and into the early fall of 2020, right? So all the things and all the chaos that was going on. And, I mean, the thing that stood out for me most of all during that was this really big push to make sure that we are divided as people, right? Um, I'm not like you, so I can't be on, on board with it. It was just, like, seriously, and a lot of, like I said, it was primarily racially motivated. And again, just a reminder that this is a church where you have two different races. You have Jew, you have Gentile. And um, the gospel is what unites us, right? So we're united in the fact that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But then it unites us in the fact that we all have one Savior in Jesus Christ. And so 
like I said, in this world where, like I said, just this co- constant push, right? I don't know if you're, you see it yourself, but I see it all the time. It's just this constant push that we just can't be on board together. We've got we to find some way to divide us, but the gospel is what unites us. And then we come to our last verse here in Romans 1.17. It says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous will live by faith. And so the power of God in the gospel is that it puts us in a righteous standing with God. And, um, you know, as I, as I look back at my message from a couple of years ago, um, I, I really am going to do this in a different way because um, for some reason, I just, I don't know why, I never really saw this aspect or this idea that this is really where the power of the gospel comes into play, is that it makes us righteous in God's standing, right? We are made righteous due to Christ's righteous life and his perfect sacrifice. Um, faith in Christ is the conduit that makes us righteous. And uh, this verse, um, so next week, you know, we're doing this Reformation celebration. And, you know, you can make a claim that this was the verse that really launched the Reformation. Because it was this verse that um, the Holy Spirit used in Martin Luther's life to understand what, how you could be made righteous in God's sight. You know, here was a person that constantly strove to make himself righteous by his own ways, and he just failed miserably. And as he, the harder he tried, the worse things got. But it was this verse that God used to help him understand how you're seen as righteous. And again, it's just as we see who we are, right, and in light of who God is, you can see the power that it's able to make us righteous. We see the phrase, though, the righteous live by faith. So it's an ongoing process in our lives. I know that, you know, um, I think for myself, how, uh, how I perceived it, maybe, I don't know if I was necessarily taught this, but how I perceived it. But I think for many, we see, um, you know, we make this decision of faith like when we're nine. And then we just kind of go on our merry way. We say, oh, we were, we were saved when we were nine. But then there was nothing really that shows from that. And what this is saying is that, no, if you've been made righteous by God, then that will be revealed from faith to faith. That will show up. That will something that you will see as an ongoing process in your life. And, and it's not just here. We see it in Galatians 3.11 as well. Now that one, no one is justified by the law of God, is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. Then we see it again in Hebrews 10. Um, but my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Hebrews 10.38. Now, you may notice in, in your handouts, like there's these all caps, and if you work in any sort of office environment, you're sending emails when someone puts something in all caps, it's like they're yelling at you or they're mad at you. I'm not mad at anybody here. I um, just want to make sure you guys understand that. I'm not mad about the righteous living by faith. What this is doing is it's referencing that this was a quotation from somewhere else. And so the term, the righteous should live by faith, is actually a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2. And starting in verse 1, 
of Habakkuk 2, it says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith. So Habakkuk lived during a time of really great duress. Uh, He lived at a time where really it looked like the wicked and the evil were not only prospering, but basically taking control. Um, You could say that he lived in a time where those, um, many people thought um, what was evil was actually good, and what was good was actually evil. Now, I don't know if that sounds any remotely close to anything that um, we can relate to today. you know, it was funny. I was talking with a friend yesterday, and he was just like, just don't mention politics. And I kind of had to laugh because I was like, well, um, you know, most years during election, I just find the campaign ads just annoying. Like after the first or second one, I'm just like, let's just let this election be over with because I'm just tired of hearing it. And um, But as I've told my wife on several occasions, like um, this year, I don't find them annoying. I find them deeply disturbing. Um, it's just really, there's no subtlety to it. It's, you know, if you don't believe in the right to kill a baby, well, you're an extremist. I never knew I was an extremist before these ads came upon, by by the way, but you're an extremist, you're anti-woman, you're anti-constitution, you're evil, you know, you pro-life bigot, how in the world could you take away my fundamental right? And that's literally what's coming out. They're not even trying to hide the fact that this is what they want. And, um, you know, so I was like, you know, thinking about that, what should our response be? Well, 600 years before the birth of Christ, Habakkuk was facing a similar issue. He complained to God even, like, God, where are you at? Like, you know, you seem to be silent when the wicked seem to be uh, in control. And the answer that God gave him was, well, Habakkuk, you've been made righteous by your faith. And you as a righteous person need to live out that righteousness in this world. Uh, 2,000 years um, ago, you know, we saw three different references here in uh, Romans 1.17, Galatians, and then also in Hebrews. You know, the, uh, the answer is still the same, right? The, ho- the Roman Empire, you know, was the epitome of, like, here's what's evil and it's actually good and here's what's good and you guys, it should be evil. And the response is the same, that we who have been made righteous by the powerful gospel should live that out by our faith from day to day. And I would say that that's our answer as well today. Like, what do we do? You know, Ed prayed about the election. What do we do when the elections don't, if they don't go our way, right? The people that we think should be out actually gain power again. Well, we as the righteous, by the power of the gospel, uh, need to live that out. So just in conclusion here, in a world where evil seems good 
and good evil. Those who have been transformed by the gospel's power are called to live out their faith. Those who are righteous are called to be lights in a darkened world, to be a source of truth in a crooked and perverse generation. So, again, as you go throughout your day, as you go throughout your week, um, if you've been transformed by this gospel's power, then I would say live that out. So let me uh, just close this in prayer before we go to the Lord's Supper. Father, we just thank you for um, the message of the gospel. We thank you for um, the privilege it is that you have um, given us your word to hear how we can be saved, uh, those of us who do not deserve it. I pray that um, for myself that I could live out uh, this life of faith day in and day out, and, and help us, Lord, as, as we live in a time of, like I said, where evil um, is looked at as good and good as evil. Lord, help us to, to live out our righteousness in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation. Lord, help us to shine as lights. And again, we, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.